There's trouble brewing in the hills of Morocco. The starstruck teenager takes to the streets of Los Angeles. And a fella called Kev gets a messiah complex. Welcome to the Son of Zorro podcast. So, episode two. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd firstly like to say thank you actually to everyone who um, who tuned in and listened to the first uh, episode of the podcast. Um, and if you haven't already, please do go back and check it out, as I think uh, listening to it really does set the scene to all the adventures that follow. Well, I thought it might be nice to start off with a few reviews from episode one, the morning of the tailor and the pixie king. The reviews were almost always positive but they're not the ones that we wish to share. One kind listener stated, a bad start bodes for a good finish, which coincidentally might be a great idea for a genitalia tattoo. Lovely. I've got another one here as well. Great prose, horrible, horrible British accents. (laughs) So bearing that in mind, mate, me old mucker, perhaps you'd like to listen to the rest in French. Uh, before we start all that again, speaking of uh, places that speak French, uh, we're going to start today's episode um, with Zorro's adventure in Morocco. Yeah, so as we have mentioned, each episode will be centred around an article taken from my old man's magazine, and this one is one of my personal favourites. It's quite a lengthy one, so sit back, open a beer, and enjoy part one of A Visit with Mr. Big and Crazy Joe. A visit with Mr. Big and Crazy Joe, a soap bar story. Please note all names and locations have been carefully disguised to protect the identity of all characters appearing in this article. The first time I met Mr. T was on the ferry from Algeciras to Tangier. I was desperate for a cigarette, but had somehow managed to lose my lighter. Probably while I slept on the two and a half hour bus journey from Malaga, the first bit of kip I'd had in some 48 hours. I had taken him for a Swede at first sight, not the vegetable variety, but rather someone that comes from that country called Sweden. As it turned out, however, he was Canadian, a grower from the Kootenay Mountains in British Columbia. Mr T had been travelling around Europe for a while and was finishing his holidays in Morocco. He was a quiet, outdoorsy, peaceful sort of guy, typical of his part of the world. As luck would have it, we were travelling to the same place, so we decided to join forces and travel together. Something Mr T would probably later regret, as he did not yet realise it, but he was with a red-eye reporter, on a mission. My mission on this occasion was to get to the truth behind Morocco's most closely guarded secret, soap bar. Little did I know at this point, but this was to be one of my hairier missions. We sat making idle chit-chat about growing in British Columbia, as well as the wonders of Amsterdam, from a newcomer's point of view of course, which he had just visited the previous week, while we filled out our disembarkation cards. On this ferry you must fill out a disembarkation, police control, card, and hand them to the immigration police before you so much as go for a pee. This gives them enough time to run you through the computers before you get off the boat. Another little nicety of Morocco. It's a police state, and a watchful eye is kept on all visitors throughout the duration of their stay. Within no more than 15 minutes, the onboard immigration cop was at our table. He asked for me by name, and when I confirmed my identity to him, he confiscated my passport immediately and told me to see him when the boat docked in Morocco. Not a good sign. I sat wondering what it could be, while trying to seem as nonchalant as possible given that a rather obvious secret policeman had just pulled up a seat within hearing distance of our table. 
It's not the cops that you see that you have to worry about in Morocco, even though they're not much fun. It's the ones that you don't see. I could see that Mr. T was a little thrown by what had just taken place, so I reassured him that all was well and that there was a strong possibility that this would only be a formality. I couldn't have been much more wrong. Getting cosy with customs. On arrival in Tangier, I was ushered along the thousand yards or so towards police headquarters at a brisk pace, stopping every hundred yards whilst my newly found cop friend showed my passport to yet another inquisitive-looking plainclothes policeman, who in turn stared across at me with a rather sinister look in his eyes. Moroccan police have a way of intimidating you by saying absolutely nothing that would give you any indication as to why you are being detained. It does have an unnerving effect. When we finally made it to headquarters, a dingy office about 12 foot by 9 full of the elite plainclothes police, I was handed over to the big boss. He pointed at a chair in the corner and told me to sit. There then ensued a number of telephone calls in Arabic, obviously about my passport, and a number of close inspections of the same by his fellow plainclothes police. They even went as far as to rip the plastic cover off my passport photo in what seemed to be a vain effort towards proving my passport to be false. They were going out of their way to get me. Thank God I didn't have 20 grams of hash in my pocket ready to chew up and swallow if pulled, like a certain rather foolish travelogue writer that I've heard about, or I'd still be sitting in jail in Morocco now, nursing broken teeth from a cop's baton and picking hash out of between what few teeth I had left. After about half an hour of watching cars being torn apart only a few yards away through a picture window, a uniformed customs agent was brought into the room. It was his job to search my effects and then search me. Although I'm very used to being strip searched, I must admit that this was the first time I'd ever been strip searched in front of a picture window with the whole world watching. They got the full Monty. So there was me looking at them, looking at me. When the ordeal was over, they pointed to a black six-digit number followed by two letters, which was on the same page of my passport as several Moroccan stamps. I'd never paid it much attention before, but this number turned out to be the number of my police file in Morocco. It referred back to 25 years ago when I was stopped in Casablanca Airport with what may, or may not have been, 20 kilos in four false-bottom suitcases. They never found anything although there was a fair bit of bedlam going on in the room, what with them being busy beating me up and staring at my girlfriend's tits and all. So whether it was or wasn't in the suitcases, we'll never know to be sure. But it got me this number in my passport, and I'm now guaranteed of a rough time, each and every time I enter Morocco from here on in. After they had finished searching every seam of my clothing and luggage, every film container, talcum powder, toothpaste and the works, including every crack and crevice of my body, I was free to go. So I bid farewell to my mates from Midnight Express and headed off in search of Mr. T. Heading for the hills. I had no problem finding him. He was at the CTM bus station at the entrance to the port, another thousand yards away or so. He was surrounded by money changers, the thieving bastards that hang around here hoping to rip off unsuspecting tourists. He suggested that the bus that was parked up alongside was ours, so I was forced to use the money changers. It's amazing how someone can count out six 100 dirham notes right in front of your eyes as you are watching him carefully, then somehow make one of them disappear into thin air as he puts the money into your hand. Caught him, a thieving little shit, but he still managed to scoop me for 30 dirhams. Two pounds. It turned out, after all, that Mr T had been mistaken about which bus was ours, and almost took us to Marrakesh. Morocco's answer to Disneyland, by accident. So we headed off for a cup of café au lait and waited out the hour until our bus arrived. The bus journey was relatively uneventful, other than a small incident when a Moroccan who joined the coach an hour into the journey stashed a parcel containing something solid right next to Mr T, leaving him looking a little uneasy. On arrival, it took Mr T no time at all to get ripped off for a piece of hash that wasn't worth 10 pence, much less the 100 dirhams, six pounds, that he had paid. Meanwhile, I had managed to purchase a nice piece of first quality, about five grams, for the same price. Word travels fast here, and before I knew it, my friends had all come out of the woodwork and we had a full-blown party going, 
with rounds of at least 20 beers at a time. I invited Mr T to join us in order to give him a non-tourist view of life in Morocco. That night, after too much to drink and a fair few spliffs of first-quality Moroccan hash, I slept like a baby, or at least until 4.30 in the morning. With the first call to mosque came the incessant crowing of a rooster that was to plague my life, keeping me awake each night for the next few days. Now, I know how to stop a rooster from crowing. You just twist their little fucking necks and they shut right up. But finding the damn thing was the problem. Needles and haystacks sprung to mind as I tossed and turned in bed while trying to mentally block out that awful screech. I had completely forgotten that in Morocco, a contract could have been taken out on my little feathered pain-in-the-arse friend for peanuts. A hundred dirhams and they'd serve him to me cooked to perfection. At breakfast I discovered that Mr T had suffered the same dilemma. He too had been awake since 4.30 due to the noise. Hangovers don't mix well with lack of sleep, so we were virtually incapable of doing much other than stare at each other through a bleary-eyed hangover haze. Making any plans for the day seemed momentarily futile. Today I was supposed to be making double zero with a couple of friends, but first I had to have a few beers to chase off the hangover from last night's revelling. Mr T joined me, although his idea of a hangover remedy was to return to the hotel and chill for a while. Double zero is made by cleaning every single bud on the plant and passing it through four screens and finally arriving at the end result. One gram of the best hash, probably in the world, per kilo of grass used. It is a lengthy process to say the least and we hadn't yet bought the grass, about six pound a kilo to me. It was better to put it off for a couple of days as tomorrow I was heading up into the mountains. Conversation at breakfast the next morning revolved around lack of sleep as well as the many different ways that you can kill a rooster. Today was the big day, however. We were heading off on our big soap bar adventure. I invited Mr T to join me, an invitation which he accepted hesitantly, providing that it was safe and that no one was bringing any hash back when we returned. Off to the mountains. It was a cold, damp winter's day and the clouds were hanging low over the mountains. Our driver on this occasion was Ali. I named him after one of my favourite TV personalities, Ali G. He was a good-natured guy who, I was guaranteed, would not drive the treacherous mountain roads like Sterling Moss, the racing driver that I had used once before. I should have asked more questions about any other idiosyncrasies that he might have had, as it was later to become apparent that if he wasn't drunk, his own driving made him nervous. He prided himself on the fact that he could drink an entire bottle of whiskey and drive without coming off the road. I didn't realise it at the time, but he would later prove this to us. And more. We loaded up on bootleg beer, the staple diet of the mountains, and headed off with Arabic music blaring from the two rather tatty speakers in the back. Within minutes the beers were flowing. They were being opened with the usual Bic lighter. No one uses bottle openers here for reasons unbeknown to me. As we passed the first checkpoint, I was spotted with a bottle of beer in my hand by one of the guards. Not cool in a Muslim country. He proceeded to bollock me for what seemed to be about 15 minutes, in Arabic. He was so incensed and outraged that he didn't seem to give a damn if I understood him or not. Perhaps he was trying to play me for a backsheesh or perhaps he was ready to run me in and give me a right good hiding. I'll never know for sure, but he got nothing and we headed off again. Mr T just wasn't sure what to think of all of this. In no time at all we were actually in the clouds and visibility was reduced to only a few feet in places. I reassured Mr T, who was looking a little worried, that it was probably best that we couldn't see much. I suggested that it would only worry him more if he could actually see the 600-foot drop only a couple of feet off the side of the road, but for some reason, this didn't seem to settle his nerves. It was early afternoon when we finally pulled up in front of Mr Big's house. He was tied up with family when we first arrived, so we were ushered into a reception room to one side whilst he tended to business. Meeting Mr Big and Crazy Joe 
Within minutes of arriving, tea and a banquet of Moroccan delicacies, including a large bag of pollen to smoke, was served up whilst we waited. It was this moment that my friends picked to tell me just how big this man was. Without going into any great detail, he is connected throughout Europe with heavy organised syndicates. He has both police and army on the payroll and can move huge quantities of hashish anywhere in the world quite freely. Not a man to be messed with. Mr T again looked worried. After a short while, Mr Big came into the room, smoking a very large spliff of first quality pollen. In fact, he was a chain smoker of spliffs. He never stopped smoking in all the time that we were there. He talked with my friends for a while, then turned to me. I recognise you, he said. Where do I recognise you from? It's not from here, I don't think. Mr Big obviously had connections all over the world and I was praying that we didn't have a red-eye friend in common who may have shown him a magazine. Most mountain people hate journalists. It soon became apparent where Mr Big knew me from, but I cannot reveal this as it may lead to his character being recognised, something a red-eye reporter must be exceptionally careful not to do. This, however, did not guarantee me that he had never seen a red-eye. I was feeling a little uncomfortable, but it was too late to turn back now. A number of people came in and out of the room whilst we sat talking. One of them was Crazy Joe. He was a wiry character who paid little attention to anyone whilst he sat eating and listening to the conversation. Every now and again, Mr Big would turn and say something to him in Arabic, which he would answer with only one or two syllables, whilst casting a sideways glance my way. A young-looking character entered the room. He couldn't have been much older than 17. Mr Big said something to him, again in Arabic, then turned to Mr T and myself saying, Go with him, and he will show you how to make hashish. It was obvious that my friends had at least asked if I could see how soap bar was made, but it was soon apparent that Mr Big was only willing to go so far. We followed the young lad out of the room and down the lane towards a shed. In the shed was a number of steel frame hash presses. They were well made, incorporating a 20-ton hydraulic jack in each one. These were not used for soap bar at all, but rather for flat press, or slate. So much for my education in soap bar making, I thought to myself, half writing the day off as a complete waste of time. In broken English, the boy explained how they warmed the steel containers with either 250 grams at a time or indeed 500 grams depending on the size of the bars required. They then place the steel box in the bottom of the press and apply up to 20 tonnes of pressure to it. He explained that each press will do a kilo in about three minutes. The boy then took us next door to show us the pollen. As we walked through the door I noticed a number of sacks at the opposite end of the room. I asked the boy how much pollen we were looking at. About 250 kilos, he answered. I wandered over towards it. It looked dry and powdery to me. No first or second quality pollen here, I thought to myself. Determined to learn more, I wandered back to the reception room where Mr Big was now sitting alone with my friends. It turned out that Ali and Crazy Joe had gone off somewhere to fetch beer and whiskey. He asked him about the pollen that I had just looked at. Hashish de Palo he said that this was a commercial-grade pollen that he was making, known locally as hashish de palo, or hashish apelado. Direct translation, stick hash, or hash made with a stick. This is a technique of making hash that originated in the early 80s, when soap bar first arrived on the scene. With this method, the grass is bagged, about 50 kilos at a time, often after removing the precious first quality pollen. The 50 kilo bag is then beaten, almost to a pulp with a heavy stick, then run through a screen to remove the debris. The end result is a combination of pollen and vegetable matter, which leaves the maker with at least double the quantity of rather dubious looking pollen than they would have extracted if they made it using the traditional method. The lower the quality that they want to extract, the more they beat the 50 kilo bag resulting in ever more vegetable matter turning to dust and making it through the screen. 
The end result is simple. Looks like hash. Smells a bit like hash. Smokes like shit. But it's the only way of extracting the sort of quantities that the Western world demands. According to Mr Big, Britain smokes 22 tonnes a week. There is simply not enough first, second and third quality to go around. I managed to get the conversation round to Soap Bar and I said that I was quite interested in soaps and suddenly felt like I should be washing my mouth out with some. He informed me that he preferred making the flat press and would only make soap if it was absolutely required. He complained of the work involved in crushing up Regina. Progress was being made at last. What is this Regina? I asked. They make it in Spain. They give it to farm animals. It's a kind of salt. They were all talking at once, almost in unison. It's what splits your head, said one of the guys making a sign with his hands against his head. It's not good. You smoke it and it makes you stoned. But after you don't feel good and it makes your head hurt. He gestured the pounding of a headache with his hands. I would later find out that Regina was probably potassium chloride, a form of salt used to supplement the diet of farm animals. Big fish eat small fish. We walked outside to get some air. Too much hash smoke had filled the reception room. While standing around in the freezing cold mountain air, I started making idle chit-chat with Mr Big. What I don't understand is why people sell smaller quantities, such as 5 to 50 kilos, to inexperienced tourists who will have it built into a van and risk a 50%, at best, chance of getting caught at the border. When they get caught, these tourists inevitably inform on the dealer who sold it to them, and local people get busted, I said. Mr Big looked deep into my eyes and said, Big fish eat small fish. Now, was he talking about big dealers eating little dealers? Was he telling me that big dealers eat little red-eye reporters who come up into the mountains fishing for a story? I felt myself swallow hard. Or was he telling me that whilst the little guys are busy getting busted to keep the arrest records at an acceptable level, the big guys are shipping tons out at a time without any problems? What was he telling me? Perhaps he was telling me all of the above. One thing's for sure, that expression sums up just about every element of life and will stay with me forever. We retired back to the house. The mountain air was far too damp and cold to hang around outside for long. Kind of like England. Once inside, it took Mr Big only seconds to roll another joint. He passed it to Mr T as the smoke billowed upwards. Mr T decided to pass. He had had enough for the moment. The Moroccans are used to smoking heavily laden joints of first quality hash, but Westerners get completely whacked by the stuff for the first short while of any visit. Although I am quite used to smoking this way when in Morocco, I tend to not hold on to the joint for as long as the locals do. I asked Mr Big if any of his shipments ever get busted. Again, he looked me square in the eyes and said, If you play with fire, one day you get burnt. I couldn't help but wonder if this was yet another subliminal message to me. The momentary silence was suddenly broken by the sound of Ali's Mercedes pulling up outside, and within seconds they walked in with a few large bags full of beer and a bottle of bootleg whiskey. Some muttering went on in Arabic whilst the beers were passed around. It would seem that some sort of arrangements were being made for me to be taken deep into the back and beyond of the mountains in order to see more of Mr Big's work, or indeed to have my throat cut for being a fucking journalist. After all, how are these people supposed to know that I have enough integrity, stemming from earlier years as a cannabis bandit, not to jeopardise their situation by revealing their true identities and location? A soap bar story. Morocco's secret. 20 kilo suitcases. Full Monty for the fellas. Heading for the hills. Ali G in the bootleg whiskey. Mr. Big, Mr. T, and Crazy Joe. Hashish de Palo. Big fish eats small fish. Play with fire, expect to be burned. 
cut the journalist's throat. The cannabis bandit. I admit it, but I'll tell you something. Even though I got a lot of hate inside, I got some friends who ain't got hate inside. They're filled with nothing but love. Their only crime is growing their hair long, smoking a little grass and getting high, looking at the stars at night, writing poetry in the sand. And what do you do? You bust down their doors, man, dumbass cop. You bust down their doors and you bust down their heads. You put them behind bars. And you know something funny? They forgive you. Right, here we go. Another music story for you, Max. Uh, Jimmy Page, you know him? Yep. Thanks for that. Uh, Yeah. So this story, um, although... Um, featuring Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, um, and we'll get onto the song that it's based around is going to focus on sort of the, uh, the crossroads between him and a girl called Laurie Lightning. So, um, she was a, a 13 year old who was on Sunset Strip with a group of girls, um, who were dubbed the Foxy Ladies, um, but they were better known um at the time and now as the baby groupies and it was um this group that was sort of led by a girl called Sable Star um and she was uh, a wild 14 year old um who started hanging around the bars of Sunset Strip um from the age of about 13 um and it was then at 13 that Laurie Lightning started hanging around with her as well so this group of baby groupies um, found themselves hopping from bar to bar along Sunset Strip and they were hanging around with um, the who's who of 70s rock and roll. Um, they were there with Mark Bolan, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, Slade, of course. And um, it's, you know, sort of that relationship with uh, with Led Zeppelin that we're going to focus on today. Um, now, allegedly, she did start her, um, her wild antics, um, at the age of 13 by losing her virginity in a bath to David Bowie. Um, but it's not that that we're going to focus on today, um, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, in the heat of the, uh, the blazing sun on the strip, a youthful Jimmy Page was hopping, um, from, from bars that he regularly frequented, such as the Rainbow Bar and Grill, Rodney's, Rodney's English Disco, and the and Whiskey A Go Go, um, and he often frequented these places um, with his girlfriend at the time, who was Pamela uh, or Miss Pamela. Um, she was a member of an all girl group called the GTOs. Nice um, to put a formal formality yeah so, i like the yeah. fact that they were that they were referred to her as miss family yes so. yeah but i can foretell that actually uh there's probably not much formality to the rest of the story judging by the introduction no it pretty much goes downhill from there it gets crazier and crazier and the craziness always ended each night at the continental hyatt house which was um known as the riot house um So yeah, Jimmy was with Pamela or Miss Pamela, if you want to be formal about it. Um, But she was getting... I do, I do. Okay, well, we we will, we will. Um, But unfortunately, Miss Pamela was getting to the ripe old age of 21. So as he looked across uh, the the bar on the Sunset Strip, um, he found his eye um, gazing over to a Miss Laurie Lightning, we'll be formal with her as well, um, who very much caught his eye and he started um, to make advances with her. Now, it's well documented that she actually... And at, uh, this, at this stage, how old was she? So she's 13. Fuck. Um, and, yeah. So she's with the baby groupies. They're hanging out with the who's who of, of, of 
of rock and roll and he's made his advance. He's definitely shown his interest. But he's still dating Miss Pamela, a member of the, the girl group, the GTOs. And it's well documented she avoided his um, advances many times um, at first. But, you know, Jimmy was a member of Led Zeppelin. He had to have what he wanted. So he got the tour manager to kidnap her. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so <laughs> he grabbed her and put her in a limo and took her to the riot house, the uh, the Continental Hyatt house. And um, the words that beautifully described the situation that she arrived at were best um, put across in an interview for Hammer of God, um, a biography of Led Zeppelin, um, in which Laurie said, the room was dimly lit by candles and Jimmy was sitting there in the corner wearing this hat slouched over his eyes, holding a cane. It was really mysterious and weird. He looked just like a gangster. It was magnificent. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? To be fair, um, yeah. It, I'm, what, what a romantic scene you've just pictured. Apart from the fact that Laurie is very much an underage girl. Yes, there is obviously that, and the other thing that worries me is there was no mention of clothes there. So while he's he's wearing a hat and holding a cane, he's not wearing anything. That looks like a pretty weird gangster that sat there naked with a hat on. <laughs> it would change all of the Martin Scorsese films, wouldn't it? Oh if yeah, they were only the, dressed. The, the Godfather series would be a very different film, set of films. So yeah, so this this is it. He, he got the the tour manager to kidnap her, and uh, she was met with a candlelit room with a naked hat-wearing, cane-holding gangster, and she found it magnificent. Of course she did. Um, so, yeah, the love the love affair um, was kept secret then, and um, he actually kept seeing Laurie Lightning um, while he was dating Pamela, or Miss Pamela, sorry to be formal. Um, may, I just say, may I just interrupt and say, as, as a Led Zeppelin fan, I find this uh, extremely upsetting. But it's, I mean, it's there. It's documented. If you, if you, if you, <laughs> what's funny is the the song, the song that we're referencing. If you go onto the comments, it's it's there that everyone's saying it's it's there. And yeah, as as someone who was raised with Led Zeppelin and dad had have all the records on to 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 hear and read about and check some of the sources for the story, it just all the love just. Cr- crumbles and you just think what have my what has my pillars of of rock and roll been based on but yeah there you go so the love affair was kept secret um and then obviously miss pamela was the ripe old age of 21 so he you know he quickly got rid of her and the, the the love carried on they were it was very much documented that they were in love and it carried on for about a year and a half um to which Jimmy then decided he needed an upgrade and um, then start, started to date um, a Bebe. A 14-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he went for... He, went, he actually went for Bebe, who was a... Um, she was a uh, Playboy playmate. Um, so he started dating her. And he ditched Laurie Lightning and yeah, he went, I think the thing was that, um, obviously the, the love affair with Laurie Lightning had to be kept very much secret, very much on the down low. Um, I've watched an interview with Laurie, um, and she said how she was always smuggled in through the back door. You know, she did, she did say she stood at the side of stage for concerts and saw him and, and, and was there for concerts and things like that, but she was always very much kept in the shadows, at the side, in the back room. She was never able to be be at his, at his side in parties and things like that. But obviously... I wonder why that was. Well, yeah. Uh, but this absolutely incensed Laurie Lightning. She was furious. And so one night um, at a bar on the Sunset Strip... Um, he was he was there with Bebe and um, drinking in the corner. 
So Laurie was off her face on Quaaludes, um, which incidentally is the uh, allegedly the uh, the drug of choice of uh, Bill Cosby. Not Bing Crosby. N- not not to be confused with Bing Crosby. No. Yeah, she was absolutely stumbling all over the place, and um, her her nose was bleeding. She was wearing this white sort of gown dress, and it was all bloodied. She was stumbling all over the place. And she came over to the corner where Jimmy and Bebe were drinking and absolutely screamed in his face, why are you doing this to me? Um, to which Jimmy um, reportedly just took a swig of beer and walked over to the Rainbow Lounge bar and grill. So just, just left mm. with Bebe, leaving her in an absolute mess. But that night, um, incidentally, ended up with um, my favourite part of this whole story, where, um, you know, sort of ghosted and and gone um, from from there, uh, Jimmy took Bebe back to the riot house where um, he took her back to his room, and obviously knowing that that's where Jimmy stayed, Laurie Lightning followed him back um, to there, you know, full well knowing which room he he liked to stay in, so barged into his room where he was there having sex with his playmate as as you would if you had a playmate as your girlfriend um which just drove her even crazier so she stormed off in an absolute rage and um yeah she came back later um still full of rage um but bebe answered the door this time um to which lorry grabbed her by the hair dragged her out into the hallway and started absolutely mauling with her on the floor. Um, to which uh, Jimmy just lit a cigarette at the door and watched, which I thought was nice. Uh, <laughs> so as this, um, as this Quaalude, uh, well, as this, this teen that was off her face on Quaaludes uh, and bloodied and uh, probably, you know, high and drunk rolled around the floor with also a drunk playmate and jimmy just stood there whoever you are i think that's a very iconic image so we get to the song the song is sick again it's from led zeppelin's 1975 album physical graffiti and yeah you go on youtube you see the comments lorry lightning's name is always mentioned it's around there and while robert plant and jimmy page have never alluded to anything in interviews um if we take from the lyrics one day you're gonna be 16 said you dug me since you were 13 um and the many references to holding pages of magazines in hotel lobbies I think very much it's um, centred around the interactions and the, that time of the life um, and the and the the time that was spent with Miss Laurie Lightning. Um, and yeah, later on in life they did they did meet up again of when she was of a uh, we'll, we'll say a more consent- legal age, a more, <laughs> yeah, a more legal age, and yeah, they uh, they were on and off for a short while. Um, but yeah, it soon split from there and Laurie, um, became a successful, I think she was a, a, a buyer for a fashion company in Los Angeles and yeah, so she, she went off in her own way and Jimmy went off in his, but I think that, that certain time they were together, um, yeah, it was just absolutely crazy. Fuck. Jimmy Page and the Lightning Girl Baby groupies on the Sunset Strip Boland, Bowie, Zeppelin, Pop and Slade Rodney's English Disco, Whiskey a Go-Go Kidnapped Wearing a hat, holding a cane Magnificent Bebe and Cosby's Quaaludes Jimmy's Private Fight Night Lightning strikes back. Sick again. Fuck.
there were some Sophistos from the TV studio right around the corner. The Devotchka was smiling away, jollying and vigorita. Then suddenly, my friends, the disc on the stereo faded out. And in the short lapse before the other one started, she came in with a burst of singing. So stories of rock and roll excess have always interested me. And uh, there's always been something quite alluring about looking at old pictures of infamous rock icons draped in women, bottle of booze and cigarette in hand. Pretty much uh, how the other half live, I suppose, uh, if the other half didn't work on Wall Street and wore much cooler clothes. And I can remember people always referring to, to Keith Richards as being elegantly wasted. And I always found that sort of juxtaposition really fascinating. Well, the person who I'm going to speak about today makes Keith Richards look like Cliff Richard. His name's Gigi Allen. You ever heard of him? I've not, known. Excellent. You're in for a treat. Kind of. So, uh, in, in everything I've ever read about rock stars, he is the craziest twat by a country mile. And before I start, I'd just like to say that I do not wish to, to glorify him in, in any way, but uh, much like a, a shocking Netflix true crime documentary, I thought I'd share his story. Hopefully uh, the kind of situation, you know, uh, you hear the one about the singer Gigi Allen, that kind of thing. Well, here it is, kids. Born Jesus Christ Allen in 1956... <laughs> Gigi, Gigi, grew, Gigi grew up in a small backwards town in the middle of New Hampshire. Good start, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the Allens family patriarch was an uber-religious fanatic named Merle, who was reclusive and abusive and who would often threaten to murder the whole family. Um, Gigi also had an older brother called Merle Jr. Um, I, I absolutely love it when parents give their children their, their names. And it was actually Merle Jr. who gave Gigi his name, as believe it or not, he couldn't pronounce Jesus. Yeah, there you go. Uh, named after his favourite book and his his favourite person himself. So yeah, yeah, after yeah. And I'm sure Merle Sr., as a religious fanatic, was slightly pissed off that his son... Merle Jr. couldn't pronounce Jesus. Um, but anyway, uh, they lived in a log cabin uh, without any amenities, electricity and water, etc. And the father um, would dig graves in the basement uh, just to show the kids who was boss. All right. Building uh, strong foundations for success was Merle. Yeah, very much so. Um, the guy was a total arsehole, and by all accounts, the two brothers' upbringing was truly horrendous, uh, which eventually led their mother, Arletta, taking little Jesus Christ and Merle Jr. off to another little nothing town in Vermont, whereby she married and changed Gigi's name. Guess what she renamed him? Um, Moses? Kevin. <laughs> Kevin Michael. All right. <laughs> Okay. What a fall from grace. Oh, yeah. So Kev, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, a.k.a. Gigi, believe it or not, was an angsty type of teenager and had very little regard for rules, regulations, and so on and so forth. He got big into music, uh, bands such as Iggy Pop and the New York Dolls, and started fronting a few himself. But uh, when he wasn't doing that, he would sell dope, burgle houses, steal cars, and he also liked to cross-dress when he was at high school. Lovely. Yeah, the usual. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was this kind of behaviour that, that led the way for who he was about to become. After school, he played in, in, a, in a few bands, and he fronted a band called The Jabbers, Brother Merle beside him, as always. And they released a couple of records, but they didn't do much. And after about seven years, they split. Before he made it, and I use the term made it uh, in a 
very light sense. Uh, Gigi flitted about for a bit and appeared in some more bands, and this is where his onstage antics gained him the reputation of being a total fucking lunatic. Some uh, really cute band names here. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, so he appeared in the, the Cedar Street Sluts. Lovely. The Scum Fucks. Oh, nice. The Texas Nazis. Cute. And uh, Bloody Mess and the Scabs. Oh, nice. Yes. For disco, they did not play. No, I think they were a K-pop band, weren't they? Yeah. Choreographed movements, very symbolic, uh, yeah. I'm sure, of the lyrics yeah. uh, that were probably equally as cute. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Um, any, anyway, as I said, this is where his, his reputation of being a madman grew and it would form the basis of his stage act until the end. I found a quote uh, which I think lends itself very, very nicely uh, and it was from one of his bandmates at the time. It read as this. After he shit on stage, complete <laughs> chaos broke out in the hall. <laughs> Bloody mess, said. All of, the, all of the old men in charge of the hall went fucking nuts. Hundreds of confused punk kids were flipping out, running out the door, because the smell was incredible. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, Gigi liked to take a crap on stage. And not only that, he was what people refer to as a coprahagiac, all right. uh, which meant that not only did he like to poop in public, yeah. he liked to eat it too. Oh, God. Oh. You might know this, Samuel, as scatting. Oh, yeah, I've heard that before, yeah. Yeah, um, obviously not to be confused with a popular jazz genre. No, it'd ruin that, yeah. yeah. Or alternatively, not to be confused uh, with the 1990s dance tune. Yeah, he'd definitely ruin that one with some of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, just thinking about it. I'm the scat man. <laughs> <Be ba ba ba-ba-ba-ba-boop. laughs> yeah. Anyway, in the early 90s, he formed... It would be a fucking great appearance on top of the pops, wouldn't it? <laughs> anyway, in the, in the early 90s, he formed the band that would make him most famous, Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies. Another cute name. Lovely. Again, Brother Mill uh, was by his side, uh, but also at this stage had grown a large Hitler moustache, which Ooh, nice. was uh, a rather luscious ensemble for the face. Yeah. I'm sure you'd agree. Uh, so Merle was on guitar. Uh, they had Dino, the naked drummer, uh, who thought he had telepathic connections with a band called the Lunar Chicks, okay. and then a guy called Bill Webber. Anything strange about him? No, just Bill. Okay. So the band, the Murder Junkies, they had uh, absolute contempt for authority, and their aim was to annihilate everything that came in their way. They continued what uh, they called the, the poop punk stage movement. Uh, great movement. And his life uh, and shows became a real life game of uh, Russian roulette. The, the shows were a brutal uh, freak show parade that only ever got one song deep and completely unhinged, uninhibited, total fucking assault of both mind and body. He'd routinely crap himself uh, and spit his own shit at the audience, uh, self-mutilate, roll around on glass, um, assault audience members and have sex with men, women and animals on stage. Oh, God. And uh, there's actually a clip on, on YouTube uh, where you can see a, a, a blood-covered GG fan uh, who was looking back, fondly remembering some of his favourite murder junkie moments. And uh, when referring to the time when Gigi had sex with a dead cat, um, he commented, awesome, Gigi is God. <laughs> Takes all sorts, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not really a talent, is it? No, I don't think Simon Cowell's putting him through to the next round for that one. No. Uh, Walliams, perhaps. Oh, yeah, Reed Golden Buzzer, that shit. Yeah. Um, but uh, nevertheless, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, Gigi was a, was a tour manager's nightmare as uh, each show would, uh, would usually be pulled after one song and um, they often led to a trip to either the hospital or, or a prison cell. You save on taxi money, though, eh? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you would. And, and, well, actually, 
um, there, there's um, there's a clip again on YouTube of of, of Brother Merle, yeah. who I who I'm going to refer to him uh, from here on in as, um, and he was saying that they actually used to go through three vans per tour, um, usually because uh, the 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 smell oh, of yeah, shit God. that oh. was infused within the walls became so unbearable that they'd have to just chuck the fucking van and (laughs) drive it off a cliff. Get rid of it, brother Mill. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it would definitely save on taxis. Um, But, you know, uh, they they gained a cult following from uh, the deprived underbelly of, of society. But, but also, you know, judging by a lot of footage that I've seen, um, a lot of nineties hipster type kids that, that probably came purely out of uh, curiosity. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, I think that's probably what his audience was. I think his stage antics obviously drew a lot of attention towards him and people kind of wanted to go and see something which they themselves didn't dare to do. Yeah, sort of the attraction of like the, the Coney Island freak show type thing. Yeah, but uh, on tour. Yeah. So... Um, and actually, there, there, there's, a, there's a really great scene in a movie called Hated, G.G. Allen and the Murder Junkies, uh, which was produced by Todd Phillips, uh, who did the, the Hangover and other blockbuster comedies. Yeah, cool. But um, most famously, or most uh, recently, uh, he produced the, the new Joker film. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm sure you could probably draw a few parallels there between uh the whacking phoenix character and 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 gg allen yeah very much so yeah he's sort of deranged yeah yeah they're very much fucking the, nutters basically yeah. on the same um, track not eating shit in the joker but uh, he's on the same track <laughs> yeah 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 that yeah. was a, that was one of the deleted scenes yeah, deleted scene yeah dvd extra that one whacking lap, lapping up a poo <laughs> oh, um so yeah but anyway um I recommend you go check it out. It's a, it's a fascinating documentary. But um, during the filming, Todd, uh, which is also another name for Pooh, by the way, I've just realised. <laughs> fit that in there. <laughs> um, Organised a free gig at uh, the New York State University, whereby all of these unsuspecting students attended, sat down uh, on chairs as if it was some sort of seminar in anticipation of, of this kind of unknown performance. And uh, they were greeted with a, a relatively sober... Oh, good. Uh, ...albeit naked. Oh, right. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, Gigi. Uh, Gigi clearly wasn't digging the vibe, so um, just to get the party started, uh, he decided to stick a banana up his ass. <laughs> Peeled. <laughs> They soon left. Oh, God. Anyway, for the few, he was idolised. And actually, it was a famous serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. He was was the bloke that used to like to to dress up in in a clown's outfit and and go to children's parties uh, when he wasn't uh, mass murdering. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, And he he was a fan. Oh, lovely. And uh, they kind of had a mutual appreciation for, for each other. And um, Gigi used to write to, to to John when he was in his prison cell. And, and they even met. Oh, so right. um, John uh, commented after, after, after their meeting uh, about Alan. Nice guy. Absolutely stinks of piss. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine he would. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Never meet your heroes, hey? No. They'll always let you down. Yeah. Um, but Alan, you know, he, he claimed that he was the last true... Uh, great rock and roller out to reclaim uh, rock music as the the real art of uh, rebelliousness, and uh, nothing says that like a banana up the arse. Eh? <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, he genuinely believed he was brilliant, a god, and uh, as I've already said, people did did actually believe him. Uh, I wonder where little Jesus Christ got that Messiah complex from. Uh, you wonder. Eh? Uh, and you know, understandably, as a, as a result of uh, his views and escapades, he started to get a, a lot of mainstream media attention, and consequently made a couple of appearances on on daytime, daytime 
TV talk shows, uh, most notably the the Jane Whitney and the Jerry Springer show. Jerry, Jerry. Yeah. Uh, and it was actually on the Springer show that uh, he first met a 17-year-old fan named Liz Mikowski, a girl who, uh, who worshipped Gigi, but whose family, for some reason, believed that he was dangerous. Oh, probably came from a long line of greengrocers. Didn't like where all their bananas were going. Probably, yeah. That was the, that was the, yeah the most obvious conclusion. <laughs> Obviously, um, and uh, on so on on the shows he would uh, antagonise the the largely Christian stereotypical American you know daytime TV audience by telling them that he was God and uh, that they were hypocrites because when they go to church they eat from the the body of god um whereas if you went to one of whereas if they went to one of his shows uh, they get to eat uh, the body of Gigi Allen oh, which uh, he claimed was better yeah um yeah didn't go down well um <laughs> and uh, yeah so he he even told them that he owned their children and that he he planned to kill himself on stage on Halloween 1999 and that he was going to take all of their children in the audience with him at the same time, and uh, amongst a variety of other uh, very lovely um, ramblings. So, um, it, and he'd actually tried to kill himself before oh, right. um, on Halloween. Actually, for the last five years, he, he tried his best, um, but he was always imprisoned at the time. Oh, sod's law, isn't it? Yeah, proper sod's law. Um, anyway, uh, it didn't go down well with the audience, but... This, again, shot him to further notoriety. And about, um, about a month after, after filming the Jerry Springer show and uh, four days after filming the, the famous Jane Whitney interview, uh, the Murder Junkies had just finished getting their usual one-song gig pulled by, by the venue organisers and the customary chaos transpired. Uh, again, you can find uh, this footage on YouTube of Gigi marching the streets of Manhattan, covered in his own fecal matter, in search of some smack. Later that day, June 1993, Gigi died of a heroin overdose in the company of a man named Johnny Puke and Liz Mikowski, the same 17-year-old girl that he met on the Jerry Springer show. And somewhat ironically... After the years and years of incessant public threats of suicide, it was an accident. <laughs> That's hilarious. So he was, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he he was buried uh, in a, in, op- in an open casket. All right. Uh, he refused to be embalmed, so he was decomposing, blue, bruised, and bloated. Keeping that image alive. Yeah, wearing a leather jacket and a jock strap with a bottle of Jim Bean in hand. A complete fashion statement, obviously. Yeah, it's the way to go. Uh, so, I mean, Gigi took the, the concept of rock and roll excess to, to a new level. Uh, one that, <laughs> for obvious reasons, hadn't been seen before and hopefully... Uh, hasn't been surpassed or shall not be surpassed in the future. And that's probably due to the fact that uh, the person would be immediately incarcerated and fucking <laughs> sent, <Yeah>. it, <laughs> sent down into room 101, never to be seen again. Um, but I suppose the funny side of all of this is that he was considered not just by himself, but by others too, uh, to be an artist. And, I suppose that kind of, you know, it depends how you define an artist. I mean, you could argue that um, an artist is a performer, tick. Someone who expresses themselves freely. Yeah. I'll give that a double tick. Um, sees the world in an unusual way. Yeah. You're going to tick that shit? You're gonna, yeah. he, he would definitely tick yeah. that shit. He'd eat Acts it, as it? a catalyst for emotions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Gigi does all of that. In which case, um, you'd have to ask... What is the difference between an artist and a psychopath? Yeah, great question. A stage? Yeah. I suppose people taking interest as well, yeah. 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 If no one's paying any attention, you're just a fucking lunatic, (laughs) aren't you? But if people come to pay to watch you, then... 
Yeah, crowd in I any suppose form you is, are an artist. You're performing to him, aren't you? So, you know, what do you think? Was he an artist or do you think he um, was a, a literal walking shit stain on society? Bit of both, bit of both. But I think I'd have to go with a twat. <laughs> yeah, just a twat. Bit, bit of a massive twat. Yeah. Yeah. He's not the messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> Jesus Christ Allen, a.k.a. Kev, Gravedigger's Dad, the scum-fucking-jabbing street sluts and the Texas Nazis, Copper Hagiac, shit-eater, Scatman and the murder junkies, the poop-punk stage movement, Freak Show Parade Catfucker Banana Drama Gigi is God Jerry Springer Liz Mikowski Bruised, Blue and Bloated Banana Artist Do you know what Nemesis means? righteous infliction of retribution manifested by an appropriate agent personified in this case by horrible cunt me oh fucking hell mate uh, that last story was a bit crazy to say the least wasn't it mm-hmm well, speaking of crazy, um, I've got here the uh, the Minnesota multi-facet um, personality inventory, um, a 566 question um, test to um, define whether someone is suitable for employability or they are medically insane. So I just thought we'd put you through it. So I'm either going to get employed or locked up. Yeah, I'll either give you a job or send you off to the loony bin, if that's all right. Fantastic. So, all the answers, true or false? First one. False. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for playing the game. Uh, So, first one. Evil spirits possess me at times. Uh, False. (laughs) Are you sure? Uh, My soul sometimes leaves my body. Uh, False. Um... At times, I have a strong urge to do something harmful or shocking. Well, I mean, occasionally I like to open the door when I'm going down the motorway. Oh, yeah, you've said this before. Yeah. So you get, yeah, I've, I've, yeah, you get the urge to open the door of the car while you're travelling at 70 miles an hour. Yeah, or if I, yeah, or if I'm, I'm walking I'm over that a down bridge. Tree. Yeah, yeah. If I walk over as, a bridge, okay. I have to put my phone in my pocket. Right, you're down as true. Because I get the urge to fucking throw it off. There you go. Right, definitely down yeah, as true. Okay. okay. Sometimes I am strongly attracted by a, uh, by personal articles of others, such as shoes or gloves. You are. <laughs> Sometimes I am strongly attracted by the personal articles of others, such as shoes or gloves. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, shoe. Are they leather? Doesn't say. Uh, you like a nice pair of brogues. I, know I do that. like a nice pair of brogues. I'll or put you down per- Or perhaps, perhaps um, driving gloves. Oh, yeah. You don't get that. You do like nowadays, a nice pair of driving gloves. I'll Especially, put you down as true for that one. Okay. And I, I blame that on the on, on the quality of car. There you go, yeah. Okay, next question. Yeah. Uh, once in a while, I laugh at a dirty joke. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sarcasm doesn't help you here. I'll put you down as true for that one. Um, I feel uneasy indoors. Is that true or false? Uh, yeah, just true or false, always true or false. I feel uneasy. No, false. I do not feel uneasy indoors. Okay. Um, I am fascinated by fire. Uh, false. I am a special agent of God. True. <laughs> <laughs> I dislike to take a bath. False. I fucking love a bath. <laughs> 
Um, tr- true question. I'm reading it here. I like mannish women. That's the wording. Yeah. Well, my previous girlfriends have all been quite hairy, but uh, never have they uh, displayed male genitalia. So I would say uh, false. Okay. I would like to hunt lions in Africa. F- false. No. No. Okay. Uh, penultimate question. I like repairing a door latch. False. And the final question. I Are sum- you a fucking psychopath? <laughs> <laughs> And the final question is, um, (laughs) quite simply, I have strange and peculiar thoughts. Only when they come to you, baby. Okay, let let me just uh, top up the scores there. True, false, false. Yeah, I can officially diagnose you as criminally insane, mate. Sorry about that. We'll call call the man in in the white uh, jackets now for you. <laughs> now see, we're sitting down here, ready to negotiate, and you've already given up your shit. I'm still a mystery to you, but I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. So if I ask you if you want some dinner, and you grab an egg roll and start chatting down, and I say to myself, this motherfucker, he's giving out like he ain't got no care in the world. Who knows? Maybe he don't. Maybe this fool is such a bad motherfucker. He don't have to worry about nothing. He just sits down and watch my motherfucking TV. See? Thanks again for listening to the Son of Zorro podcast. The Lightning Storm of Crazy Joe and the Scatman. Please make sure to like, review and subscribe to the podcast on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Feel free to follow us on Instagram and check out our website as you will be able to see pictures from this week's episode uh, as well as a few extra songs from the Son of Zorro Spotify playlist that goes along with each episode and any accompanying artwork as well. As always, a la vida. Come on!